the last time I was here preceded one of the most extraordinary and worst trials of my entire life. I'm expecting this time to precede the greatest season of blessing that I've ever entered into. <laughs> I spoke about a couple of things. One of the things I spoke about was the drinking of the cup. I, many of you, might, many of you, any of you were here, it was probably non-memorable, but I, there was one time I was talking about the worship of God, and I said, uh, it makes me so happy that it, I, I could dance. And this madman that was with me, Rob McMillan, said, I, I could dance too, and he got up and started leading me in the waltz. I didn't know what to do. It was scary. <laughs> Some of you are going, oh, that meeting. <laughs> so I, I, I'm saying that sincerely. After I spoke here, I really did go through a very uh, wretched and uh, deep trial. But I have to say that at this time in my life, I am experiencing uh, an opportunity to do things which I, I was... Up always hoping would uh, come to pass. I want to let you know I'm not going to be trying to raise money from you, so let me talk a little bit about what it is that I'm trying to do, okay? And you don't have to feel like, I don't want your money. Anybody who tries to give me money from this congregation, for, because like, I, I have friends who have become my patent, patrons. I had a couple of patrons. It's a delight to have a couple of patrons, because like, I've, I've had the opportunity now. Now, Don Casperson tried to help me in this project on the love of God. Remember I wrote all those scattered pages? And like Don is a genius, and he like was not able to bring forth any organizational scheme whatsoever. <laughs> and, well, there was one, but it, it didn't help because I am such a mess. But what ended up happening for me is that I had this illumination about the love of God. It's such a thing which is upon my heart that I want to talk about like all the time. And uh, it, I've had this thing working in me since the early 90s. And I had no grace to put this thing together. But when I determined to seek to serve uh, Mike Brown in the fire school in Manhattan, he allowed me to teach this course on the love of God. And it forced me into putting this stuff together. And now we've been working on this for about a year. I know that this is going to start feeding back. Would it be easier if I use like a handheld? So I'm, I'm really rejoicing in this because I now have an opportunity. We've got like this, it still needs a tremendous amount of work, but the potential for this to be, ending, to be uh, used as curriculum in certain Bible schools uh, in other parts of the world is, is just wonderful. And I had an opportunity to seek to uh, impart some of these things to the Fire School of Ministry uh, this week to their, I guess, their third year students and then a, a seminar on Saturday. And so I'm just so blessed. It's really like the fruition of, of, a, of a dream in my life. You know, at one time, the, the grace of God, I was just so wanted to be involved with this, but the grace of God was, apparently, was really only upon my worship leading. Like wherever it is that I would go, I would say, I really have something which I would want to share. And they would say, just please play some music and sing. And, and that was fine. And now it's, it's like uh, I'm, I'm getting both. I'm really just blessed and happy about this. May I mention that when I start to talk about things that are as elementary as the love of God, usually people uh, either are like those who are like looking for an intense amount of comfort. They usually feel that they already know it, and yet they want more. 
and then there are those of us who are like I'm a serious disciple and I'm really not interested okay that was what I was facing at the fire school in Manhattan Charles was on you know one of the leaders there he was there every day we had like really serious kids about a year ago, I was down in, uh, when, we, when we canceled on one another because of the ice storm, which made me never want to come down to North Carolina again. You think that we have problems with weather in New York. The ice storms that you guys get, I don't even know how to deal with them. I mean, it's, really, it's so intense. This is so loud. Okay. It's not loud. So I went, I went into this class, and I had all these students last, I guess, two Januarys ago, and it was a class on, on uh, the pastoral ministry, and I'm talking with them, and they look like they're deer caught in the headlights. Yes, even in New York City, we know what that looks like. Deer caught in the headlights. And then I said to them, how many of you, class of 30, how many of you want to be involved in pastoral ministry? I mean, they're in Bible school, right? Well, like two or three raised their hand. I said, well, what do you want to do? They said, well, I want to be a revivalist and an evangelist, a revivalist. Yeah, me too, me too, me too. So I I want to go where nobody's ever spoken about Jesus before and get killed. (laughs) I go, yeah, that's what we're about, you know. And... So I was thinking, you know, I'm in the wrong class. <laughs> and, in, and in Manhattan, when I was dealing with this class of about 20 people on a, on a weekly basis about the love of God, I had people that knew everything and were really serious. I mean, they were so serious. They were serious. They were going to give me a hard time if I tried to tell them that Jesus loved them. I knew it. You know, and like to try to say, look, you need to concentrate on this thing. This is foundational. No, that you don't understand. It's the, it's the, it's like, uh, what's the motto of the school? Whether by life or by death? Yeah. That's what's important. And I believe that that's important. I mean, I, I'm not, I, no way was trying to undermine any type of foundation. I was trying to be very careful as to how it is that I built there. And so, this is what it is that I did with them. I said, well, knowing the love of Jesus is something which is very important. And they would say, and like, like there's this one guy who was in his 50s in the class, and he was like, yeah, right, I know. And others were there going, you know, when is this class going to be over so that you can teach us about Philippians? You know, we want to know about the Bible. I said, well, why don't you open up with me to John chapter 15? Why don't you open up with me <laughs> to John chapter 15? There is no clock. There's the clock. What is a normal stopping time, Byron? Quarter after 12? <laughs> it is that. Who said that? <laughs> So here is what we call the historical and cultural context. You have this old Jewish guy. He is very old. Um, He's like the last of his generation. 80s or 90s. 
And he's living in a, a foreign area. He's living in Asia Minor. He's like Turkey. He's not living in Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee anymore. He's living up in the Ephesus region. This old Jewish guy. And uh, he was one of the twelve. And his name, we know it as John. And every one of his closest friends is dead. Every one of his closest friends is dead. He's living in a culture which is completely changed from the one in which he grew up. The temple is destroyed. And Jesus hasn't come back. According to the information he had from the mouth of the Lord and that was recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, surely he would have come back. He didn't come back. He's seeing the Jewish aspects of the church transformed into practically a totally non-Jewish expression. He's living primarily amongst non-Jews. He's old. He's an alien. He's just got out of prison. Got off of Patmos, right? Had this extraordinary thing happen to him. Book of Revelations being written. And he's got a group of disciples, and they want to know what happened. This man was the most authoritative witness to the work of God that he lived on the earth at that time. There was nobody who knew God, nobody who knew Jesus better than this man. He had to walk with the knowledge that that was the case. Can you imagine walking with the knowledge that that's the case? Some of us who are like in our 50s and 60s, we know what it, or 70s, we know what it's like to feel a little bit out of time, right? Honestly, I need kids that are 20 years younger than me to help me program VCRs and things like that. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You don't understand. What's a VCR? Bless him, Lord. <laughs> I meant it. <laughs> Talk about iPods. I don't know what they're talking about. If you can imagine being the last of the twelve, if you can imagine being having to, I mean, it's difficult to walk around knowing that you have a little bit of grace in your life that has set you apart from somebody else, isn't that right? I mean, we, we have to meditate on things like what do we have that we have not received? You know, who has made you to differ? I mean, John is walking with this extraordinary weight of revelation and authority. That must have been very hard. You take a look at the emphases that are coming out of him. They're extraordinary. He has these disciples that are sitting around him and they want to know what happened. He hasn't written anything about what happened with Jesus. They are pumping him for information. Now he has preached this over and over and over again. And he doesn't really get into the information that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He takes it for granted. To some degree, it's almost as if at some points of the Gospel of John, it's like it's being written with a sense of humor. For instance, in John 6, I get a kick out of this. John 6, some adversaries of the Gospel, they say, Ah, what is this? The Messiah is coming out of Galilee. And you know, no, we know he can't come out. Isn't the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Not Galilee. John doesn't say anything. 
Everybody knows where Jesus was born, right? John just lets that hang there. He doesn't even bother to say, and by the way, he was born in Bethlehem. Everybody knew it. He wasn't going for the stuff which everybody already knew. He's bringing out some things which really made a difference to him. And some of the most poignant places in the, in the scriptures in the Gospel of John, I find them to be from chapter 13 on. Chapter 13, uh, Pastor, has really given me a lot of grace for both myself and many in the ministry because I, and probably you, would have disqualified all of those people from being legitimate apostles. I know him better than you do. I'm going to have a better place in the kingdom than you. Oh, get behind me, Peter. <laughs> you know. right. The Lord knew what he was talking about when he called you Satan. Would you shut up? I'm, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine having been a waiter at the Last Supper? There's 12 guys. One of them looks devil-possessed. They all walk into the place. They're all filthy. They're all going, la, 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 la. What filth? La, 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 la. Peter's going, no way I'm washing their feet. They're saying that they're higher in the kingdom of God than me. No way am I washing their feet. And they're all the same. And then Jesus, he, you know the story, he takes him out his, off his outer garments and girds himself with a towel and washes their feet. And there I am bringing in the lasagna. Yeah. This is a joke, right? It's lamb. We know it's lamb. And I'm watching these guys, and I'm watching Jesus wash their feet. And I've just been listening to them arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then everything happens that we know happens. And then there's the day of Pentecost, right? And Peter stands up with the eleven and begins to preach. And I go to my friend who's waiting on tables. This guy cannot possibly be genuine. I remember him. Are there any disciples of John the Baptist left? I would have totally disqualified them. I would never have had grace to have said, those people are true apostles. They are truly the anointed of the Lord. Because of all their issues with selfish ambition, their problems, not being willing to humble themselves to serve one another, what it is that the Messiah had to do, that's just unbelievable, really. It's given me a lot of grace for me and a lot of other people. I feel as if the Lord may have given me a word of, of encouragement for you as a church. It's going to be a difficult word to hear. And the word is Philadelphia. It's worshiping over there. felt like the Lord gave me the word Philadelphia. First it was like I was going to go, is there anybody from Philadelphia in this place? <laughs> Anybody ever see Philadelphia? <laughs> Anybody have an aunt in Philadelphia? You're from Philly? No. no. You've been there, yeah? <laughs> well, I believe that that's a difficult word to hear because Philadelphia is one of the two churches that doesn't have any rebuke from the Messiah in the book of Revelation, right? It was a place where people loved each other. Somebody on that side of the room says, there's a reason I'm sitting on this side of the room. I don't want to sit on that side of the room because so-and-so is on that side of the room. That, of course, may not be the case here. I'm not prophesying or anything. I'm just talking about normal church stuff. Is that pathetic? But I believe that the Lord really does want you to get a hold of this, that the Lord is seeing you as a people who love each other and that there is the commendation of God that's upon you. It's very difficult to receive the approval of the Lord. 
it's a lot more difficult uh, to receive the approval of the Lord than it is to receive somebody saying, yes, and the Lord has shown me that you're all lukewarm here. And he's a little bit ticked, but he's going to give you another chance. I believe that the approval of the Lord is upon you. Back to my message. Um, John, he says, he says to his disciples, I want to tell you what happened the night that he was betrayed. And here's the context. Jesus knows that he's going to be departing to the Father. And he starts to speak to his disciples and tells them the things that are specifically upon his heart. Take a look at John 15. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. I would, have, I would have never, ever, ever have imagined that Jesus would say to these people that they were already clean. Remember what I just described? I mean, and, and what's about to happen? Betrayal, denial, running away? You are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. I would have, if I was one of the editors of the Bible, I would have taken that verse out of there. I would have written perhaps, and you will become clean because of the blood which I shed for you. And starting in verse 4, it says, Abide in me. And you can count this with me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you, number two, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who, ab ab number three, abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away, that's number four, thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So what the Lord is saying to these people is, I want you to be in touch with me in an ongoing relationship with me when I am gone in the same way, in the same quality, if not more so, that you have had while I have been with you. The thing which John, at the end of the first century, when the church is beginning to fall into formalism already, when the, uh, when the apostolic witness is just about out of the earth, what John is saying is to the church is that this is the most important thing that Jesus wants. He wants us to be in a relationship with him that will be proven in that you will bear fruit. He wants you to stay in an ongoing relationship with him. Abide in me. Now, remember, when the Gospel of John was, was uh, read in the church, it was not read by the church. They didn't have a printing press. They wouldn't have known what to have done with the printing press, because that was advanced technology, like the VCR. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. <laughs> So, how is it that these people are hearing this? Well, they're hearing it. Someone is reading it to them. And what's going on here, because this is being composed by someone 
who is giving it to a culture where they're listening and concentrating, concentrating, listening. These are the words we're young, avid disciples, younger than John. The 60-year-old is younger than John. The 70-year-old is younger than John. John was there. These are his words. The presbytery has finally prevailed, and they've gotten this man to write down his memoirs. It's being read for the first time. We're being trained in order to take care of the churches or home groups or to preach the gospel. And it's being read to us, and we are sitting on the edge of our seats. And we're hearing these words repeated over and over again. We're concentrating on them. These are the words of God incarnate. These are the words of the risen one who is dwelling in me. I am listening to these words. And they begin to have a sort of rhythm. I'm, I'm beginning to anticipate what it is that's being said. Abide in me. Unless you abide in me. I want you to abide in, and my mind is already going, me. And you've got to abide in me. You must abide in me. And it's gone on five times. And then in verse 9, Jesus said, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in. And I'm ready to fill in the blank. Because I can't see the page. And I've never heard this before. And this is a change of pace. This is supposed to startle them. They're a culture which lacks a lot of external stimuli. They're listening. It's important. They're praying together several times a day, seeking the face of God, probably have the, some, some of the synoptics memorized. And Jesus said, just as the Father loves me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And it catches them by surprise, folks. It catches them by surprise. Now, I would say, if I was being told, abide in me, I would say, like, well, what part of you do I, uh, should I be abiding in? I mean, Peter had a really bad day once. It started off great, didn't it? Peter, yes, Jesus, you're getting revelation from the Father just like me. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Ah, oh, the commendation of the king. And not only that, Simon, I'm changing your name. You are going to be so stable. It's fantastic. And I'm going to build the church on people who are just like you. Those who are receiving revelation and are willing to follow it through. And later on in the day, what's he hearing from Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine that day? By the way, how many of you have had like really good days and then something bad happens? What do you remember at the end of the day? <laughs> Lord, keep me. <laughs> 
What do you remember at the end of the day? You remember the embarrassment. You remember the reproof. That's what ends up making, and the most human beings, the, the, uh, the ones that I know anyway, I can't say, you know, I've read a study, but the ones that I know, or maybe just me, the embarrassment, the reproof, the difficulty, that's the stuff that you go to sleep with at night. That was a bad day. Jesus is saying, abide in me. Is he speaking about ruthless truth? Abide in my ruthless truth. Is he speaking abide in me? Is he asking me to abide in when he comes to people and says things like, you're just a whitewashed tomb. Herod, that guy is a fox. Not, that, was, that was like a, 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 like a very negative term. You know, sneaky, carnivorous, malicious not of the flock of God. What am I supposed to abide in? I'm willing to do anything that you say. And then he commands, this is an imperative in the Greek, abide in my love. All these are imperatives. These are orders. These disciples are going, yes, sir. They have a heart to obey. They've been transformed by the Spirit. They have a living example in John and those that he's trained. And, and John is saying, this is what Jesus wants, and this is what he's commanding. He's commanding you, oh, serious disciple who just simply really wants to get the work done, who's looking for the anointing in order to get the power to preach or to establish or to do the work of God. And here Jesus is saying, I want you to abide in me. And go, yes, Lord, I'll abide in your power. God was with Jesus of Nazareth. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit with power. And he went about healing all those who are sick and oppressed of the devil. I'm going to abide in that. Amen. And then Jesus says, abide in my love, not my activity. And it's almost as if the serious disciple, and I had them in these classes... They didn't want to abide in the love of God. They wanted to go with Charles out in the streets and preach the gospel and maybe get beat up, you know, something like that. I mean, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating by much, really, right? Thank you. I needed a witness there because I know that you guys are thinking, um, but this is really the way these folks were. And, and so I brought this, this, this word to them. Um, Knowing the love of God is very important. Making that be a major issue in your life is very important. And the reason why it's important, oh, thou serious disciple, is because Jesus commanded you to do it, and so you better take it seriously. Can you imagine having to talk to somebody about the love of God like that? I mean, I thought like this for about two or three classes until they finally like, all right, yeah, abiding in the love of Jesus. It is important because we've been commanded to. Because they weren't interested in getting comfort. They were interested in doing the work. They were, in, they were not interested in having their deep emotional needs, quote-unquote, met. They were interested in learning how to serve the Lord, to go out and to do the work of the mission, and perchance to die for Jesus. This is the mindset. I love that mindset. The mindset that says, whatever you want. 
Now, in this case, whatever he wants is that we should get to know him. We should get to stay in a personal relationship with him. We should stay in that relationship. We should develop that relationship. We should recognize that apart from that relationship, we're never going to accomplish anything of any type of value and are in danger of being broken off and put aside. And we say, well, yes, Lord, I definitely want to abide in you. And then he says, okay, great. This is the door. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to concentrate on. I want you to remain in a conscious awareness of my love. And all of a sudden, it is not uh, just a mere fad. It is not a manifestation of Western, modern, postmodern self-centeredness. It's the foundation of true spirituality and a real relationship with God. It's the window into His heart. And it's the grid through which we're able to interpret His activity in our lives. And we're supposed to get this. We're supposed to meditate upon this. And I believe that the Apostle John did. And I have a reason to believe that as well. Because when we want to find out who it is that wrote this, we go up to this old Jew who's like old and very Jewish. And we're Turks. We're from Asia Minor. We're, you know, the Ephesians, and, you know, all those t people, you know, the, uh, the Celts come, down, come out of uh, Galatia and stuff like that. I mean, we're, that's who we are, right? We're relating to him and we're saying, look, you're telling us this. Who are you? That's not important. Well, what is your lineage? That's not important. Um, you had a ministry, right? But, well, what was your ministry? That's not important. Um, like, uh, did you have any brothers and any family members? Tell us about you. Who are you? It's not important. What is important to you? And what he says about himself when he introduces himself to the people is he says, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says it five times. And it's almost as if those five times are corresponding to those abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide... Do you understand what I'm saying? This guy gave himself to this form of meditation, that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He took the command of the Lord to heart. But surely he shouldn't have. Surely that was excess, right? No. We're this guy's disciple. We're this guy's disciples. I mean, the word of the Lord has been given to us. This is the holy word of God. This is in here is the testimony of prophets, apostles, and God, the words of God incarnate. We are under the word. The Spirit of God has breathed upon this. The Spirit of God was on John. We, this is an extraordinary word. And we say, like, Lord, tell us what to do. How do we develop a relationship with you that is also going to be something which is pleasing to you and, and meaningful to us? Uh, not that that really makes a difference. I mean, if we have to embrace meaninglessness for your sake, it's like, well, that's all right. But, I mean, meaningful lives are good, right? I mean, you, uh, what should we do? And Jesus is saying, stay in a relationship with me. 
fine. What type of relationship with you should I stay in? Should I continually be before you, confessing the sinfulness of my heart and the wretchedness of my motivations? What is it that you want from me? What is it that I'm supposed to be concentrating upon? And then he says to us, this is a commandment, abide in my love. Right, but that can't just be for me. That has got to be for the whole corporate body. But the word here, you see, New York and in the north, we are linguistically challenged. We don't think we are. But we have no word for, correct my pronunciation, we have no word for y'all. We are linguistically challenged. We have no second person plural word apart from like use or use guys. And that is pathetic. Now I know that y'all is quote unquote is not really like <clears throat> proper English. They don't say it in England, right? But it really works. The English language, except for in the South, is linguistically challenged. You see, because like in the Greek, we can read whether it's second person singular, you, or second person plural, y'all. Did I pronounce that correctly? Hallelujah. Okay. And so what do you think is being used here? You or y'all? You. It's singular. I want you, singular, to abide in my love. You're not going to necessarily get that out of the English. You have to, I mean, the English version would have to be a southern version of the Bible. And I would encourage you to start raising money for the southern version. And we will have, finally have some understanding as to whether or not it's second person singular or second person plural. Because really, this stuff messes you up unless you have some sort of Greek or Hebrew background. You don't know what's going on here. Now, it would have to be singular. Because Jesus is saying this, As the Father has loved me, the individual, so have I loved you, the individual. Abide in my, my specific love for you. The serious disciple doesn't want to give a lot of time to that, honestly. The serious church does not want to give a lot of time to that. The serious missionary, the serious prophet, the serious evangelist, anybody that's serious doesn't want. And then the people who do want to give a lot of time to that, they are what I call the droolers. <laughs> it's like, love me, daddy, love me, daddy. Put me, pick me up in your arms and swing me back and forth, daddy, daddy. Comfort me, daddy, daddy. Comfort me. I'm teething, daddy. I'm teething, daddy. Pick me up. The droolers. It's like, just tell me he loves me as I am. He loves, you know, this love me. And, and it's enough to make a serious disciple. And I want to let you know, I am a really... I hate to say it, but I'm a very serious type of a guy. I really am. And the only reason why I think that I have a good sense of humor is because, like, I don't know whether to laugh or cry about stuff. 
And I, I, so I've determined to hang out with Charles <laughs> and laugh about stuff. But, but the reality is that everything is extremely serious, and I'm looking at a church for the most part that I'm saying, oh God, when are we going to actually bear fruit that is apart from specific unique unctions that tend to come down sporadically? When are we going to end up really manifesting the fullness of God? Not in like a weird way, like, I will never die. I'm going to be 12 feet tall. You know, that type of thing. But just like Jesus in the church. Those of you who didn't know what I was talking about, be glad you weren't there. And after all, those folks are ruling already. I wish that they would let us rule with them. Yeah. They have a they have a realized eschatology, which is a bit unrealistic. Back to what I was trying to say before I started going off on a stupid tangent. I want to see the church, I want to see my life bearing fruit, bearing fruit, meditating upon the Word, being in touch with Jesus through the Word, bearing fruit, bearing fruit. And I think that what it is that the Lord wants is the same thing, and He's given us a key to it. Which is like if, like for instance, Byron mentioned that I have a scola- like an intellectual bent. I want to tell you I am not a scholar. I know scholars. Like I know scholars. I think that I'm doing okay when I can read what it is they've written and understand it. Okay? I am not a scholar. But I do have a very active mind. And like my active mind led me to conclude that it is the spirit that makes alive and the flesh profits nothing. Amen? My active mind led me to believe that I need to rely upon God. And I'm a really serious person that wants to see the work of God accomplished and done. And the seriousness of my quest to know God has led me to this, that he wants me to know his love and to put my foundation in there. And that I don't have to worry about becoming stunted in my spiritual growth and forever being one, uh, you know, 18 months old and drooling and needing to be picked up. And, you know, all, all they want to do is, you know, eat and poop and be changed and go to sleep, you know. This entire drooling stage of life where perhaps they're beginning to learn a word or something of that nature. I don't want to do that, but I have to say something, that true, and that is this, true spirituality, true, and a true apprehension, a true relationship with the God who loves us, or who loves me, will not lead me to that place. Actually, if I'm really relating to the God who really loves me and I'm relating to real love, what's going to end up happening is that there's going to be fruit born through my life which is going to be redemptive activity. And how do I know that? Because Jesus is the only person who has ever lived who perfectly abided in the love of God. And look what He did. So I don't have to fear being stunted spiritually. Nor do I have to fear that, if I, that I'm going to do disservice to a church or to a person's relationship with God if I tell them, listen, God really wants you to abide in His love. I don't have to fear that because I have an example in the Messiah, the, pre, the, the Son of God incarnate. He stayed within, according to His own words here, an ongoing, He stayed within an ongoing abiding relationship with the love of his father 
We're supposed to relate to Jesus the way that he related to his father. Now, that's not all that we're called to in, in this matter of relating to God. you understand? I mean, we're also to relate to the Father with and through Jesus. But we are supposed to relate to Jesus as Jesus related to the Father. Take a look at that verse in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Um, in Hebrews it says... Jesus says, Behold, I and the children whom the Father has given me. Jesus said later in John, As the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. Remember how the Father sent Jesus, by the way? I mean, this is a brief uh, digression, but I do those things. And I mean, when the Father sent Jesus, it was like, Angels sing! Right? When the Father sent Jesus it went, and Jesus came into his ministry, it was, That's my Son! As the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. About, you know, right? I mean, and we're supposed to be living under the approving gaze of Jesus. Ouch! Why did I say ouch there? Because when I think of that, my heart has to be adjusted. Now, I'm adjusting more and more every single day. I've been adjusting to this for many years. And I dare to say that I know something of the love of God. It's just that I have found out that this thing is much deeper, much higher, much broader, and much longer than anything that I could ever imagine. You know, in Ephesians 3, which is one of my favorite prayers in the Bible, and certainly one of my favorite scriptures, and it was through that, through a, a, a guy in, in a driveway named Marion reading that prayer to me in the New International Version that a lot of the stuff began to come alive to me in the first place, back in 1990-91. In Ephesians 3, it says that we would know the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of, of, of the Messiah which surpasses knowledge. I was having a rough time I was going to have to preach, and I was having a really rough time getting a hold of the love of God. I don't know what I had done. Probably something stupid or something sinful. I don't remember what. I was having a rough time. And I, 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 I went by myself to pray, and it was like, this is ridiculous. I mean, all right, what is the breadth? What is the length? What is the height? What is the depth of this love? And I ended up having to get somewhat militant with my soul and say, well, as far as breadth is concerned, this breadth, the breadth of this love, it's broad enough to include me. The breadth of the love of Jesus is broad enough to include you. How long is it? Well, I said to myself... I think that the Spirit of God was giving me help to throw off some of this stuff I was under. I put myself in. It's broad enough to include me. It's long enough to last me my entire life. As far as height, it's, it's high enough to be over me, to overshadow me, and depth that's deep enough to get under me. And I had to actually take a stand and say, you know, the adversary wants to rob me of this knowledge and say that I am not worthy and that I have put myself out of it, but it's broad enough to include me. And it's long enough to last me. And it's high enough to overshadow me. And it's deep enough to bear me up. And I'm not going to get moved from it according to the grace of God. Yeah, well, you know, 
I just wanted to share that with you. There might be some of you that are, you know, you, you may be hearing these things that I'm saying. Jesus wants you to abide in his love. And you're going, yes, yes, yes. But, you know, I, you just don't know who I am. And of course I don't. And the only person who is really interested in you is Jesus. I mean, to the degree of which you are worthy. And I'm not being facetious. The only person who is really interested in you, to the degree of which you are worthy, is God Himself. And He has proven His esteem for you because your value to God is equal to the price that He paid for you. And you were not redeemed with gold or silver or any of these other things. You were redeemed with the precious blood of the Messiah. And how valuable are you? How valuable are you? Can you dare to look at yourself and your soul and say, To God, I am worth the blood of Jesus, and that means that I really am worth the blood of Jesus? I'm really worth the blood of Jesus. I want to let you know something about me. And what's true about me is true about you. I am really incredibly valuable. Really valuable. And I can prove it. Because there was once a time where I was in bondage and kidnapped and broken and enslaved and I was ransomed. And I... Anybody here, any of you sinners, ever see Groundhog Day? <laughs> I forget the name of that comedian who got, went up on the platform. Not Bill Murray, the other guy who's standing up there and he's going... You know, you, what am I worth? And some little old lady in the back goes, Two bits! <laughs> what was that guy's value to the people in that auction? 25 cents. I forget what it is that Bill, they paid for Bill Murray, but it was an awful lot more. And it was a crushing thing to that particular guy's ego. Your value is what somebody is worth uh, what your value is what it is that somebody... Well, let me put it this way. The only person who really understands the value of something is the creator of it. And the creator of all things is God. And when he looked upon your pitiful soul that was so in need of help, he didn't just see that which was wretched, he saw that which was so valuable that he was willing to bankrupt himself in order to bring you back. Because the person who went out into the field and said, Oh my goodness, there's that pearl. Look at that pearl. I'm going to sell everything I've got to get that thing back. The person who bankrupted himself was the father in giving his son to get you. And that's what the kingdom of God's foundation is all about. It's about your being extraordinarily valuable. Extraordinarily valuable. Worthy of the blood of Jesus. And we go, but God, I am not worthy of the blood of Jesus. And Jesus gets in our face and says, I have a command for you. Yes, Lord, anything. Matt, please, can we make some eye contact here? I don't dare. Can we please make some eye contact here? All right, Lord. And we look up into the, into the eyes of not just extraordinary compassion, but desire, delight. 
And he, and he tells us, I'll tell you what you're actually worth. You were worth my blood. Because I loved you that much. The Father loved you that much. The Spirit enabled me to come here and be born of a virgin. Loves you that much. This whole thing from God's end, Jesus says to us, is about you, the individual. And we get into this whole argument with God and say, I'm not going to wear that crown. Thou art worthy. But we have got to come to that place and say, But Lord... My worth comes from you, but I really am worth it. Isn't that a horrible thing? How many of you feel easy adjusting your soul to something like that? Doesn't it almost sound blasphemous? Here's some more, here's some more things which could sound blasphemous. Jesus fulfills the Torah. He's the image of God upon the earth. And what is it that he does? He loves his neighbor like he loves himself, right? Doesn't he do that? Love fulfills Torah. Love fulfills the law. Now, is that just a man loving his neighbor as he loved himself? Or is that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, loving his neighbor like he loves himself? Was God really... It says nobody has seen God at any, any time, but the Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. He has exegeted Him, right? And so there we see Jesus doing exactly what He sees the Father doing. And what is the Father doing in the Son of God? The Father is loving His neighbor like He loves Himself. Do you realize that according to that type of thinking, that God loves you like He loves Himself? What would God be willing to do for himself if he was lost, if he was bound for outer darkness? If he, if, if, what would God be willing to do for himself if he was going to be divorced from fellowship from either the Spirit and the Father or, you know, one member of the... What would he be willing to do? He'd be willing to do anything to bring, them back, to bring himself back into relationship, wouldn't he? Because the love is that intense, the love is that fervent, and it's the same thing for you. And you need to repent and believe the good news. You're loved way more than you could possibly imagine. Way more. We just begin to get clues, hints, in what it is that God did for us at the, uh, in Jesus at the cross. And Jesus talks about this stuff in John 17 when he prays to the Father and says things like this, and you love them just like you love me. What? And then earlier in John 15, he's commanding us to get this. Just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The same quality of love, or are we getting ripped off? Are we getting ripped off because, well, the Father loved you, Jesus, but only, we only get you? We're not getting ripped off. I mean, just dealing with that verse, there are other verses as well that speak of the Father and the Son both love. But, but listen to what it is that I'm saying and try to... Allow yourself to either be comforted or to receive in this way. Is Jesus capable of loving you the same way which the Father loved him? Is he strong enough? Is he wise enough? Is he able enough? And the answer to the believer is like, absolutely, he's able. He's capable. He's God incarnate. He's definitely able to do it. As the Father has loved me, with that same quality of love, I have loved you. 
I want you to stay in this deep and personal ongoing relationship with my love that I have for you. Now, I'm, I know that this could end up sounding like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but there's a reason for that. Because I am saying the same thing over and over again. I, you know, I get embarrassed sometimes in prophetic ministry when I listen to pastors. They say, if I hear somebody say again prophetically, my children, I love you, I'm going to go nuts. Why can't somebody come to us and rebuke us and lay somebody's sins wide out on the table and, you know, and tell this congregation what they really need and what they... And instead it's, my children, thus says the Lord, I love you, Right? Well, maybe if the church believed it, he would stop giving that word to babes who are prophesying the truth. I mean, if the church was ever able to really believe that that was the word of the Lord, and here it comes, all right? It goes, my children, I love you. If the church was able to receive it, we'd be going, yes! And then it's, and what can I do for you? There are two things that Jesus said were going to be spoken of throughout the whole world, right? What's one of them? The gospel. Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the nations of the world, and then the end shall come. A couple of chapters later, a couple of chapters later, this woman breaks open that flask, pours out that ointment on Jesus and says, Remember what I told you guys, that the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached throughout the entire world? I want something to accompany that message. Wherever this gospel is preached, what that woman has done will also be spoken of. And it's like, why? Because if we're looking for the appropriate response to the love of God in the gospel, we see it there. That's the appropriate response. What's the appropriate response to the love of God once you have received it? It's that type of reciprocation. Question, question. Was there anything in what that woman did that is similar to what it is that God the Father has done for you? What flask in which, which held his identity? What flask in which he saw his future, his hopes, his love? What flask was broken and poured out over you? Would you stand with me and worship just a little bit? I think that that's an appropriate response at this point. At least that's where I am, and then I'll com uh, complete what I said and pray for some of you, perhaps. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your holy name. Blessed be the mighty name of the Messiah, Jesus. Blessed be the one who arrests our attention with a commandment to abide in his love. And who dares us to say, yes, I will launch into that and thus shall I actually bear fruit.
I shall not become a drooling, uh, simple infant for my whole life through abiding in your love. But Lord, in just trusting that I can make this my mainstay, I shall bear fruit. And it shall be the type of fruit of which you are worthy. It will be reciprocal, a reciprocal service, Lord. As you have served me, I shall serve you. As you gave your life for me, I shall give my life for you. How much, how I love you. How grateful I am to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this commandment which takes me by surprise. I have been commanded to say yes to the knowledge of and the experience of your love. Thank you very much. How wonderful you are. How lovely is this love. How exceptional are your ways. Lord, I love your ways. I love your tender mercy. I love your justice. I love your kindness. I love how you bowed down to be with me. I love your indwelling presence. I'm so grateful to you, Lord. I'm so grateful to you, Jesus, for taking me by the hand and bringing me with you to the Father. I'm so grateful to you, Lord Jesus, for loving me with the same quality with which you were loved and are loved by the Father. I thank you for mediating that same love to me. I thank you that this love is mine all my days, that it is broad enough to include me. It is long enough to last me my life's journey. It is high enough to overshadow me. It is deep enough to get beneath my need. Thank you so much, Lord, that I am in this. I am in this love of yours. I am in this now. And I can entrust myself to you. You are a faithful creator because you have loved me with an everlasting love. It is with cords of kindness that you drew me. I can hardly believe my own words, Lord. I can hardly believe my own convictions. And yet your spirit bears witness to these things which continue to startle me. And I'm grateful to you for it, Lord. I'm grateful that you love me with this, in the same manner and to the same degree of this love that is within the Godhead for the members of the Trinity. I'm astounded by it, O oh Lord. And I'm thankful to you for creating us in such a way as to be absolutely worthy of this love. One word, if you really don't know Jesus, this is the reason that the living God sent His Son to die for you. Without Him, you will be alienated from the love of God all the days of your life and into eternity. But if you don't know Jesus and you're here today, I want to let you know that this love that God has for you is literally reaching out to you as He extends His arms at Calvary and the voice of God beckons you to come. Perhaps you have come with a friend. I would encourage you to speak with that friend and talk with him about the things which are upon your heart and have a real talk with God himself in the Son, in Jesus, and deliver the whole burden of who you are, what you've done, and what you're like to him. 
He will not reject you. He values you to the degree that He sent His only begotten Son. And this thing which has been written in John 3.16, that He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him would never perish, but have everlasting life. It's a true word. And God created you to be the recipient of that love. God created you to be worthy of that love. I encourage you, I encourage you to turn to Him and to say, God, I am willing to learn to be your disciple. I turn from my own ways. I turn to this love which you have for me and simply receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Bringing the flask, bringing the, uh, bringing the treasure of your life and just saying, here it is. Do whatever you want with me. If you'll make that type of transition, that type of, uh, of relationship, it's going to develop and I can share with you as somebody who initially met Jesus hitchhiking from Atlanta, Georgia to New York on some road in North Carolina. I can tell you that that God who changed my life has never left me. It's been over 32 years and He is still with me, still holding on to me. His love is still broad enough to include me. His love is still long enough to last me my entire life. His love is still high enough to overshadow me. And His love is still deep enough to hold me up. And it's the same thing for you. And saints, you have a, you have a gospel to preach. You have the word of the Lord to preach. I smell like a Clorox cleansing anointing in this place. And if you open up your heart and begin to say yes to the love of God, He'll cleanse you from lesser things. And He'll open you up and open up doors for you. And you'll be astonished at what it is the Lord does. Let the cleansing come, Lord. Let the cleansing come, Lord. To have done with lesser things. To have done with self-condemnation. To have done with the accusations of the enemy. And let there be a fresh arising and appreciation of the gospel. What a message we have and what a life you have given us. We'll close with a... With a, uh, with a call to anybody here who is sort of moved to want to know the love of God better and you're a serious disciple and not someone who is simply looking for comfort. There's abundant comfort for you, but I haven't come here specifically for you today. But Jesus is here for you. I'm calling to this serious disciple who's willing to say, perhaps I should give the love of God a chance to work in my life. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said that there is an anointing to grasp the love of God and that when you know the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Jesus that ultimately you will be filled with the fullness of God. There's an actual key to being filled with the fullness of God and it's, actually, it's, it's knowing the love of Jesus. Those of you who don't believe it, search the New Testament and see if there's another way. It's the only thing, it's the only promise that I know of concerning how to be filled with the fullness of God. 
It's like it's so, so ridiculous. Surely it's like uh, 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 atomic power from God through prayer and fasting or and jumping into a wood chipper or something of that nature. And the Lord is saying, no, it's in knowing my love and responding to me. And there's an anointing to grasp it. Paul prayed that the Father, from whom everything derives its identity, would strengthen you in your innermost being, in the core of your spirit, that Jesus might dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in this love would know both the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the Messiah, having received the power together with all the saints to grasp it. And there's an anointing for this. And if you're willing as a serious disciple to pursue that anointing, then please come on up and my wife and I will pray with you. I feel like pouring it over my head. Sweetie. Okay, would somebody give Charles a mic, please? And we'll just turn this off.